Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Neppy. With conflicts and climate change, the worldwide refugee crisis continues to grow. According to the U.N. Refugee Agency, there are 110 million forcibly displaced people worldwide. 36.4 million of those people are refugees. In 2023, 60,014 refugees were admitted to the United States. Nearly 1,000 of those individuals made their way to Iowa. This hour, I'll visit with representatives of the International Rescue Committee and Embark, which is Iowa's first and only refugee-led service organization. But first, Russia invaded Ukraine nearly two years ago, and millions of Ukrainians were forced to flee for safety. In April of 2022, the Biden administration announced the Uniting for Ukraine program. It gives Ukrainian citizens a pathway to come to the United States for a two-year period. But participants must have a sponsor in the United States who agrees to provide them with financial support for the duration of their stay in the country. When Mike and Sally Merritt of Ankeny learned about Uniting for Ukraine, they decided they wanted to help. They sponsored a Ukrainian family that fled from Kharkiv when Russia invaded. And they're on the line with me now. Hello, Sally. Good morning. And hello, Mike. Good morning as well. Sally, how did you learn about the program? Well, I was reading an article in the newspaper, and there was another family that had done a very similar thing, and they said, here's the program. There's a welcome.us website that's sort of like Match.com, not that I know much about (laughs) Match.com, but what it does is it's a way we posted a profile and we hit submit on this welcome.us website and we hit it some evening and then the next morning we got up and we had a number of hits, which were Ukrainian refugees that were seeking people to sponsor them under the Uniting for Ukraine program, it requires them to find a sponsor, and the Welcome.us website helps people find each other. We matched with a family that was a mother, a father, and a teenage son, and uh, we corresponded, I'm going to say, for about a month, and then Mike and I made the decision that we would, in fact, go ahead and sponsor this family so that they would be allowed to come to the United States. Mike, when when you and Sally learned about Welcome Corps and decided this was something you wanted to do, what was your motivation? What made you think we should do this? Well, I think it's important to appreciate the fact that there are just a lot of displaced people in the world. And uh, Sally's family in particular, her grandfather came here as an immigrant in 1905 and didn't speak a word of English. But there were people in this country that helped him succeed establish a family, grow in American society. And that's always been one of the things that we wanted to try to do as a family is help other families. And so uh, we felt this was a good tool using the Welcome Connect platform to help with the Ukrainian refugees because they really seemed like they had a lot of challenges and we were limited in what we could do. Were you particularly inspired to do this because of the conflict in Ukraine, Mike? Yeah, 100%. Once again, Sally and I lived in Europe for a few years, and 
we saw the devastation that was left over from World War II and other conflicts that were in the European area. Uh, and just seeing the pictures and the devastation. And then after our family got here, talking to them about the changes they had to go through. I mean, they went from one day where they were living just a middle-class life in Kharkiv to, to not having safety or security and having missiles going over their heads and all of a sudden no employment. So we just felt that uh, we needed to reach out as best we could, and we felt this program was the best way to do it. Sally, when you made that connection, when you, you found your match, how do you even start that conversation about it? How, how do you decide that this is the family that you can help? Well, let me say some of our family members said, you know, you people are crazy. You know, people can be anybody on the Internet. But the mom in particular, like I say, we, we found each other on Facebook Messenger and the conversation for the month before we decided to sponsor them was, hey, what are you doing today? And they have a cat and a dog that they love dearly. And uh, we saw a lot of the cat and the dog. So that was definitely a leap of faith. Is this somebody that's trying to scam us or so, in some manner? Um, but this particular family, um, you know, this is almost the two-year anniversary, February 24th is the two-year anniversary of when the Russians uh, invaded. So this particular family fled from Kharkiv, which is on the east side of Ukraine. They drove through Poland, and they wound up stopping in Germany um, because Germany was a safe haven for them. But they did not particularly enjoy living in Germany. They do not speak the language. So then we came along under Welcome.us website, and now they're in the United States. They've been here for about a year. So they fled with their cat and their dog and the, the three members, the three human members of the family as well. I'm curious, once, once you made that connection, once you decided that, that you would sponsor this family, Mike, give me a timeline from, from you and Sally saying, yes, we want to sponsor you to them and arriving in the United States. How long did it take? I believe it took about uh, four to six weeks. What happened was we had to submit paperwork through the Homeland Security Immigration Bureau and the Department of State showing that we were willing and able to uh, support uh, serve as a sponsor for this family. And then they had to go through certain steps. And then once we had the agreement that they could come to the United States, they then actually, in this case, they bought their own tickets to travel here uh, to the U.S. They had only one real asset, and that was their car that they drove out of the Ukraine, and they sold that for a little cash. And then they flew over here, and we picked them up in Chicago. So we started uh, working with the family in the United States when we picked them up at the airport in Chicago. And we had friends in Chicago that helped us, put us up for the night before we drove back. Uh, and then from there, they spent seven weeks in our house. Um, that's not as long as other people have had uh, immigrant families stay with them, but it worked for us. We had a uh, standalone, uh, I'm used to calling it a mother-in-law room in the basement mm -hmm. with a, a basically a one-bedroom apartment. They moved into that. Uh, we helped them get uh, accustomed to the United States way. We supported them for the whole time they were in the seven-week period they were in our basement. And then during that time, we also made sure they got the things they needed to get to be able to function in American society, like very simply a driver's license, 
social security cards because they followed all the rules. They were able to get all this information after a couple, three-week period of time. And then they started working. They were able to get a job. Once they got a job, very low-paying job, uh, they were anxious to get out on their own. So we helped them find a place to stay. We helped them get organized. Uh, it's a benefit, I think, or a compliment to my neighbors. Although we didn't have a formal group to support the family, it was just Sally and I were the only sponsors. When our neighbors figured out that what we were doing, we had one neighbor come over here and give them some cash. Others come over here and give them grocery cards. Others uh, bought them a number of items for their bathroom and the new place that they were moving into. Some people gave them beds. Some people gave them more cash. So I thought the generosity of the people around us was really amazing. It showed the community that we have around us to support these people because they needed it and people stepped up to get them started in their American life. Sally, what were the biggest challenges? Well, one thing I would say that was our uh, thing that we simply did not understand is uh, the importance of credit score to get credit. So like we were saying, the family was living in our house um, and then I thought if we could come up with the cash for first and last month's rent, it would not be that difficult to find them an apartment. But what we didn't understand, maybe we should have, was um, that leasing agents, the first thing they check is what is somebody's credit score? Well, at this point, they'd been in the United States possibly two months, and their credit score <laughs> was very, very, very low um, because they simply had no credit history. Um, so we checked with a number of apartment buildings, and basically we found a very sympathetic um, apartment manager and that was willing to take them despite their very, very low credit score. So that was educational for me because, um, you know, we're in a house with a mortgage, and we haven't spent a long time since we've uh, rented an apartment, and rental agents are looking at what is your credit score. And Ukrainians coming, you know, to the United States, they don't have a credit score. So it's been about a year since they arrived. Am I right about that? We picked them up at the end of March 2023. So we're coming up on one, one year in the United States. And I'm, I'm sure they have a lot of challenges yet ahead of them. But Sally, how are things now? Well, things are looking up for them. Um, they started working at a hotel but at the hotel, the hours were, were seasonal, and they were basically cleaning rooms. But if there were no rooms to clean, then they weren't given the hours. So about a week ago, they got a job at a senior's home. It's a lot more steady hours for them um, and more of a steady um, set schedule. So um, things are, are looking up for them. Um, you know, they've got the problem that everybody in the United States has when you have uh, – not a lot of income, um, a car repair, possibly, you know, uh, a dental uh, visit or something could really set them back. Um, but today, um, with their job at the seniors home, um, they're, they're doing pretty good. Would you recommend to other people taking this route, Sally? Absolutely. Mike mentioned it earlier, but the thing that was our biggest takeaway from that was just basically the generosity and kindness of our friends and neighbors, um, that just people were so um, willing to help and, and donate things 
that we were just surprised by people's generosity. And, you know, it's the whole thing, too, of, um, you know, one-third of the people in Ukraine have been displaced. And I mentioned, or Mike mentioned, my grandfather um, was was an immigrant. And I I want the message to be people should be kind to immigrants, you know, there but for the grace of God, go, go I. Um, and we're helping one family. Sally and Mike, thank you both so much for talking with me. Our pleasure. Sally and Mike Merritt of Ankeny, they successfully sponsored a Ukrainian family through the Uniting for Ukraine program. We will learn in a few minutes about other ways that refugees in Iowa get assistance. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about the Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we're talking about some of the different ways that refugees who make their way to Iowa can get the support that they need. This is just a small sampling of the organizations that assist refugees. There are multiple nonprofits around the state that were founded with the sole mission of supporting refugees and immigrants who are new to Iowa. There are other nonprofits that do this as part of their work. So if you work with or volunteer for or have benefited from the work of one of these organizations, organizations, please give us a call and tell us about it. You can call 866-780-9100, 866-780-9100, or you can email talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. In a moment, we will meet Abigail Swee, who is executive director of Embark, Iowa's first and only refugee-led organization founded by refugees from Burma to serve Burmese Iowans. With me right now is is Sarah Zainich, Deputy Director over Iowa Programs with the International Rescue Committee. International Rescue Committee is one of 10 voluntary agencies that work with the U.S. State Department to help resettle refugees. Hello, Sarah. Hello. It is wonderful to have you here. And we were just talking about these private sponsorship opportunities to, uh, you know, sponsor refugees from Ukraine, the Uniting for Ukraine program. There's also a program called the Welcome Corps that allows individuals or groups in the U.S. to privately sponsor refugees from other places around the world. That is not the way that most refugees make their way to the United States. So can you describe for me the process that IRC is part of? Absolutely. So... IRC, like you said, is one of the formalized partners that provides resettlement services. So we work directly with the Department of State. We receive referrals um, through UNHCR, through the Department of State of refugees in need of resettlement. We have 90 days to provide core services, those initial kind of basic services to support folks in establishing their lives in the U.S., Um, there's agencies across the state, across the country that do similar work from different that are affiliated with the different um, 
nonprofits across the country. All right. And we'll talk about what you can accomplish in those 90 days. Short, short period of time, (laughs) 90 days. But um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, we know that we're having this refugee crisis in the world and recent conflicts are just enhancing that crisis in Ukraine, in Gaza, in Afghanistan. So many people who have been forced out of their homes in the United States Former President Trump really reduced the number of refugees that were being welcomed into the United States. And then the pandemic struck and things kind of fell apart. So tell me how you've seen things being rebuilt over the last four years. Absolutely. It has been a process to rebuild. Um, I think part of what has been challenging is that the when numbers were decreased um, and then when COVID hit and and the nuances of trying to do interviews overseas, the pipeline decreased as well. So there has been a need to rebuild pipeline and interviews and the screening process and the vetting that happens overseas and also a need to rebuild staffing and, and uh, infrastructure capacity within resettlement agencies on the U.S. side. And so... I think the number is right around like 100 local agencies closed during kind of the previous administration and during the COVID pandemic um, just due to low numbers. And so it's been a a kind of ever-evolving process of trying to grow and rebuild new offices opening like like IRC in Iowa um, have opened as a result to try to increase that capacity. All right. And Iowa, of course, is one of 50 states. So when when refugees make it through this process, which is a long and difficult process for most refugees, mm-hmm. when they finally make it to the United States, how do they wind up in Iowa? Yeah. So every week, the Department of State, all of representatives from each of the 10 resettlement agencies get together and they review list of referrals of refugees. Um, They always try to send refugees to places where they have a friend or family. Just like if you or I were to move to a different place, it's easier to resettle and to find find solid ground when you have someone who can help you navigate that. Um, But they go through every week and they refer agencies to the different cities. If someone doesn't have a friend or family relative that they can go join, it's based on where there's community. So perhaps there's a strong Congolese community in Iowa, so they'll send more Congolese cases to Iowa. Um, Or it might be based on where there's medical care, if there's medical concerns that need to be addressed. Um, But it's a kind of ever-evolving process and a very detailed process that that they'd use to send folks to different areas. Last year in 2023, approximately how many refugees came to Iowa? A little over 1,500 refugees were resettled by the resettlement agencies across the state. Okay, but that doesn't include refugees who would have come through uniting for Ukraine. That So we don't know that, that full number necessarily. Correct. Yeah, that 1,500 just includes people who have the designation, the legal status of refugee and come through the formal refugee resettlement program, which also includes some special immigrant visa holders, which are Iraqis or Afghans who um, were contracted to support the U.S. military. So let's talk about that 90 days that that you get to help someone settle in Iowa. And I think that it's important to underline that, you know, often people are coming from terrible circumstances, coming with very little, with very little English. 
What can you do to help them in that first 90 days? Yeah. So, you know, it all starts with a warm welcome at the airport. We know that cases are arriving before they actually land in U.S. soil in Iowa. Um, We start preparations before they arrive. We start looking for housing. We start planning for medical care. Um, Once they arrive, we welcome them at the airport with open arms and make sure that they have a hot meal, making sure that they're meeting kind of those basic needs. Those 90 days, like you said, go very quickly. Um, And we focus on really those core basic needs, health care, education for children, English classes for adults, housing, um, and starting to look for employment as well. In in that 90-day period, as you are trying to, to help make all of these connections and get the resources and the papers the and the paperwork done, do you also have the opportunity to help connect refugees who come to Iowa with some of these nonprofit organizations that support them? Absolutely. That's a big piece is we want to make sure that every refugee that's arriving into Iowa, that's arriving into the United States, is connected to community. Um, There are things that we can do as a resettlement agency um, through our contracts, but there are things that we're just not as poised to do um, or that we're not the experts in. And so we certainly want to make sure that we're connecting people with appropriate faith communities, that we're connecting them with ethnic community-based organizations like Embark or like some of the other organizations across the state so that they can have that sense of community and the wraparound support. And it's also just something familiar um, when there's someone who looks like you, who speaks the same language as you, who comes from the same background as you. It really means a lot. Well, and you talked about housing and and that hot meal, but furniture, clothing, things like that. Is that something that you can also help with or is that something that, that refugees need to get from somewhere else? So we collect donations. The resettlement agencies are required to provide kind of a bare minimum list. The State Department dictates that we're required to provide quite literally a bare minimum, one fork per person, one spoon per person, one plate. Um, Typically, if we have enough donations, we try to give more than that, knowing that they will have friends come over or family. Um, But donations can be hard to come by. So occasionally we need to purchase those goods. Um, And... But we do everything to kind of establish that base need um, and those basic goods. I know that in your organization, you also employ people who have been refugees themselves. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, our organization, I think there's about 25 languages spoken by our staff, Um and so we have actually more languages spoken by our staff than we actually have staff. Um, and it's it's really important to us to have staff who have lived experience, staff who have come as immigrants, staff who have come as refugees, because they can best speak to what things were like back home, what the process of coming to a new place feels like and what challenges people might be running into. Um, and it creates a better sense of trust with clients as well. So you mentioned uh, perhaps there would be a strong Congolese uh, or you know community in Iowa. I know that there are a number of strong <laughs> Congolese communities in Iowa and Sudanese communities, and we'll find out about the Burmese community in Iowa. Can you give me an idea? We also, you know, of course, mentioned that a lot of people have come here from Ukraine recently. Can you give me an idea of where we're seeing refugees come from, in, maybe in the past year? Absolutely. 
This past year, we've seen um, what seems to be increasing diversity in the number and the number of countries that refugees are coming from. Um, In Iowa, we continue to see uh, high numbers of Congolese coming. I would say it's anywhere between kind of depending on the month and depending on what's going on maybe 50 to 70% of the arrivals are Congolese. But we're also seeing South Sudanese, Somalis, Iraqis, Afghans are still arriving. Um, and we're starting to see more folks come from the Northern Triangle, from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras as well. And also from Haiti. Yes, yes. Large, large numbers of people coming into Iowa from Haiti. So what do you see as the greatest challenges? I mean, you've talked about what you can offer, and we'll find out more about what nonprofits can offer. But what are the greatest challenges to the people as as they settle here in Iowa? Yeah, I think one of the big challenges that that we see and we hear a lot from the people that we're working with is um, kind of the transition and, and transitioning from what they're used to, what they've come from, the countries and the cultures and the communities they've come from into U.S. culture. Sometimes that can happen smoothly. Sometimes there's similarities, but sometimes they're they're conflicts. Um, I think one of the big things is that we see often um, a lot of the communities that refugees come from are a lot more communal. So they are very focused on coming together as a community, wrapping their arms around people. Um, And in the U.S., we're much more individualistic. We are, you know, I'm going to take care of myself, and we have connections and friends and support networks, but not. We don't like to ask for help. Exactly, exactly. Um, And so that's where a lot of you know this nonprofits come in is helping um, ensure that people have that sense of community. When I was talking with Sally and Mike um, from Ankeny a few minutes ago, they mentioned that credit scores were an unexpected large obstacle for the family that they sponsored from Ukraine. You are are working to try to ease that that housing transition to find housing. Is that a is that a challenge for the people that you're helping as well? I mean, if you've gotten them an apartment, that's a, a good thing, but that makes it really difficult to get a car or do anything else. Yeah. You know, in the U.S., everything runs on credit. We get our credit run for housing. We get our credit run um, sometimes for jobs. Um, And if you want to kind of move up, if you want to get a car, if you want to get purchase a home, kind of get that American dream, you need credit. Um, And so one of the things that IRC does is we offer a financial coaching program through our office that's open to immigrants and refugees um, and other community members as well, where we work with folks to establish their kind of family budgets, work towards financial goals, but we also have access to lending products that are really tailored to the specific needs of refugees and immigrants. Um, So they tend to be a little bit lower interest. It understands that people are coming with little to no credit. Um, And part of that includes credit building loans. So we work with folks to help build and establish their credit. Um, In this past year, IRC worked with a number of clients and helped people get access to almost $35,000 worth of loan products, um, which is really helpful. A lot of those were credit building loans to help people establish their credit. What's finding employment like? You know, Iowa is a is a really unique place. And I become, I feel like, more appreciative of the Iowa context every day. Um, employment in Iowa is is truly a blessing. Um, we're able to find a number of employers who 
work well with our clients who are understanding of the fact that clients come with limited English. A number of employers across the state do a fantastic job of kind of hiring in cohorts or hiring team leads that may speak a little bit more English and be able to provide translation for lower levels of English that that work with them. Um, And people are able to get well-paying jobs. The average um, wage of uh, employers, of employees that IRC worked with in the past year was a little over $17 an hour, which means that people are able to afford housing um, and people are able to work towards goals like buying a car. Um, Right around 10 of our clients have bought cars in their first year in the U.S., which is something that I would say is very unique to Iowa um, and doesn't always happen where there's higher costs of living or lower um, paying jobs. You say that except that Thinking about living in Iowa without a car is, I mean, that's an incredibly <laughs> a huge challenge, especially if you're driving to a packing plant or, you know, another manufacturing facility. There are a lot of places where you cannot get there with public transportation. So while that's a huge accomplishment, it, it also just shows us how incredibly difficult that first year must be for people who are trying to work and become independent. Exactly. We see a lot of people who carpool who part of that connection to community also becomes connection to that lifeline of someone who can provide transportation in those early days so people can get to work so they can maintain jobs so they can work towards achieving those goals. When there was an influx of refugees from Afghanistan coming really quite suddenly, we did see news articles about uh, refugees who wound up at a hotel and, and didn't get the support and the services that they need. Do you feel like Iowa and the different agencies have rebuilt to a point where we're meeting the needs of the people who are coming? Yeah. You know, I think part of the challenge when Afghans arrived so suddenly was just the sheer numbers and how quickly. Um, and and it was in the in the timing when resettlement agencies were trying to build, trying to rebuild. Um I think we learned a lot as a network from that experience, and we've been able to take those learnings to improve, to improve quality of services, improve the speed of services, and also work with our partners, work with the Social Security Administration offices, work with the Bureau of Refugee Services, work with landlords to expand our capacity even beyond our doors. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. I am talking right now with Sarah Zainich, who's deputy director over Iowa programs with the International Rescue Committee. IRC is one of 10 voluntary agencies that work with the U.S. State Department to help resettle refugees. This hour, we're talking about some of the different ways that refugees who make their way to Iowa do receive assistance. Earlier, we were talking with individuals who personally, privately sponsored a refugee family. And coming up in just a moment, I will talk with Abigail Swee, who is executive director of Embark, Iowa's first and only refugee-led organization. And we'd love to hear from you as well if you work with a nonprofit or have benefited from a nonprofit that assists refugees. Give us a call and tell us your story. 866-780-9100. Or you can email talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. This is Talk of Iowa. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at UpstreamFM.com. 
It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. This hour, we are talking about some of the different ways that refugees who make their way to Iowa can get the support that they need. And this is just a small sampling of the organizations that assist refugees. There are many nonprofits around the state that were founded with the mission of helping refugees. There are also other nonprofits that support immigrants and refugees as part of their mission. If you have an organization or an experience with an organization you'd like to tell us about, you can give us a call at 866-780-9100, 866-780-9100, or send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. With me is Sarah Zanich, Deputy Director over Iowa Programs with the International Rescue Committee. IRC is one of the 10 voluntary agencies that work with the U.S. State Department to help resettle refugees. And now we're going to find out about a very different kind of organization. Abigail Sui is the Executive Director of Embark, Iowa's first and only refugee-led service organization founded by refugees from Burma to serve Burmese Iowans. Hello, Abigail. Hello, good morning. Thank you so much for being here. And and I want to start with your story because you yourself were a refugee. When did you come to Iowa? I came to Iowa in uh, at the end of 2013. I first I uh, resettled to Tennessee in September 2013 and moved to Iowa after three months of my resettlement. Okay, and you come from Burma. What forced you to leave your home there? It's really about the discrimination, you know, religious discrimination, minority ethnic group discrimination. Um, We could not worship freely or um, if someone is from ethnic group like me, you will never be able to get promotion or a higher rank or a government work because of our background. It will be a very surprise if someone from ethnic minority group get a job at the government. And really, it will be maybe less than uh, 3%. Um, So all that uh, background discrimination, who we are and what we believe, and a lot of that um, violence, against minor ethnic group by the military. So all that story um, make us leave our country. And over a million people have been forced to flee from Burma. Nearly 10,000 Burmese refugees have made their way to Iowa. When you left Burma, then you went to Malaysia. I, I want to. I was talking earlier with Sarah about what a long process it is to actually get the opportunity to resettle in the United States. So you went to Malaysia. How long were you there? Yeah, in Malaysia, I um, have to wait for the resettlement about almost five years. Um, I would consider that's a lot, a short period of time because of my college, my coworker said that she has to wait over 25 years in wow. Thailand refugee camp. So it's really depend on where we apply our resettlement. Like some people from Delhi, India, uh, w- might take five to 10 years. But then in Malaysia, I have to wait about five years to come to the United States. When you left Burma, I know that you have three children. Who did you leave Burma with? Um, yeah, I'm married here in Iowa. Okay. That's the reason I moved. So I have three kids here. However, I have family members that live in, uh, in Burma. Uh, I will not mention where they are exactly right now for the sake of their um, safety. Uh, military coups still happening, and it's not safe at all for them. 
Um, so my parents, my sibling are still in Burma. And people ask me why, you know, why just you come to the United States and why not them? And that's a good question because of uh, my family is really, even if you live in Burma, it's not safe. Even if you if you leave the country, it's not safe. You have to make that hard decision whether you live to just die or you just take a risk. And still, you know, you never know what's going to happen. So I have to leave the country not knowing where I'm going, what's going to happen. And still, like my sibling has to uh, hide somewhere because of right now, since 2021, February 1st, military coup is regime that um, dictatorship happened again. So they are not safe either. When you were resettled to the United States, when you went to Tennessee, you had that 90-day period that Sarah and I were talking about where you got some assistance. But can you tell me, I'm sure that 90 days went really fast. Can you tell me what it was like for you? Um, I will say there's a lot of challenging, right? Um, the way how we were told about the United States and the, the actual, when I arrived, is different. Um, and I know that resettlement agency has very limited funding that they can only provide services for 90 days. However, that 90 days do not cover all the services that we need um, to continue our life in the United States. Imagine that if you, you know, you, you were born here and you grow up and you are very familiar with culture and everything. And then out of you know, the, the um, expectation or something that you have to move out from the country and then maybe you're placed to Asian or Burma without any resources or language that you can connect with. So it's kind of really that the challenge that we have faced, I'm lucky enough to be, you know, I came as a single. So it's more like for me that I don't have to worry for kids or any other. However, it's still transportation, language barrier. I speak little English when I first came. And I want to go to school, but I know, you know, that's a long process for admi admi admission and the school registration, all that financial, that was not, uh, that didn't work out. So I would say so many challenges that family has to face, including myself. Yeah. And again, I, just starting over from scratch mm -hmm. in a country where you don't speak the language in three months, I, yeah. I can't even imagine um, when you came to Iowa, um, that was in the early days of EMBARC. And EMBARC is an acronym. It stands for the Ethnic Minorities of Burma Advocacy and Resource Center. Do you remember when you connected with the, the people who were creating EMBARC? Yeah, I was one of the founding staff member. You know, our office started opening in Paw County River Place. Um, and the Embark was founded in 2012 by refugee from Burma for refugee. So I already have that connection with my community. My husband himself is a founding board member with along with other seven refugee members and other uh, people that uh, support the organization. Um, so that's where I connected and I have started as a family advocate in early 2014. So that that gave you the opportunity to connect with community, but it also uh, gave you an opportunity for employment. Yes, yes. That's my first employment uh, after coming to the United States, not knowing even the simple how to fill out that Medicaid application. But community started approaching and asking me to fill it out. So there's a lot of training process that even resource and system that I have to learn uh, or spend time and 
the good thing is many are volunteer, you know, other people that are willing to support and um, lead us and guide so that we can help other family members. So it's really embark the train the trainer model that has been a huge impact, myself including and other, my fellow um, employee, the co-worker, so that now we are able to stand even after the decade and still continue supporting our community. You are in Des Moines. Of course, not all Burmese Iowans live in Des Moines. How do you connect with people and serve people who are in other parts of the state? Yeah, we connect with the leader or the pastor, I would say, um, when things come. Like, for example, when the pandemic happened, that um, it was quite challenging for who do not speak English at all. Uh, Many of people lay off. Um, we don't know where to apply the unemployment. Even some people applying, but it, they never receive the benefit, right? So we come across the state leader. We make phone call. We connect that services. So it's really the pastor, even the uh, vaccine, the flu clinic, all kinds of that service that available or resources that. So we will connect through leader to leader from, uh, from a different city. And they know Embark that the one that really main support or provide resources. So... I got a lot of phone calls from leaders from across the state to work with them. Give me an overview of the kinds of programs that you offer, because you do so much. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for that. That's a great question. And our mission is really to empower our community to work self-sufficiency through advocacy, education, and community development throughout Iowa. So focusing that, our culturally specific program are parent navigator that really focusing on increased knowledge of American non-parenting, child development, access to preschool and kindergarten by working closely with DMPS in Des Moines. And the the main program that we have is crisis and advocacy that we provide free, confidential, linguistically and culturally access, civil case management, system navigation, peer support mental health focus group. And for those uh, survivors of domestic violence. And we have education program that provides um, ESL citizenship classes. Um, our citizenship class is unique because of we have not just the instructor, the teacher, but we provide co-facilitator that are from community. They can direct communicate with the student and the teacher so that they met to make sure the student understand and um, to provide the education in the best way or to be able to understand by our student. Um, the only social enterprise called interpreting service is another service that we provide. We provide language access through this, this service and our goal is really to provide uh, social services to our community, making sure our community, Burma is very diverse. Like we have so many dialect. Uh, we could not even, I could not communicate to the current person if he does not speak Burmese. So we need those, we want to make sure that all language cover. So that's, we are uh, focusing on it. Um, we have access center walk-in that everyone has day. I know that we don't, do not have funding for that. However, because of the volunteer every week that span five to six hours, everyone has day just to provide services. We have uh, a tax expert that will come every Wednesday and will provide um, free services. We have a Medicare service provider that will volunteer every Wednesday. So we really that depend on volunteer to make sure even just to read mail, to schedule an appointment, 
and all kinds of application that they need, the family need for. So that's all the wraparound services that we provide under our program. I want to go back to, you mentioned your crisis and advocacy program, and so many refugees, so many Burmese refugees, but so many refugees, period, have survived violence, have been through some truly traumatic circumstances. And because they are so vulnerable, that also leads often to more violence or exploitation. And uh, I guess, Sarah, I'll let you respond to this, and then you can tell me more about what you do at Embark in a moment, Abigail. But so many people who arrive here, you're helping them find housing, you're helping them, you know, get sort of the basics that they need and navigate bureaucracy, but they're also people who have survived these really terrible circumstances. Is there a way that with the International Rescue Committee that you can support people and, and help them get mental health support? Yeah, it is certainly a need. Um, and, you know, you talk about the experiences that people went through prior to coming to the United States. The resettlement process, like Abigail mentioned, itself is stressful and can be traumatic. Just it can because be isolating. It's, and, exactly. Yeah. It's There's so much additional stress that compounds. Mm. Um, and so... The International Rescue Committee and the other resettlement agencies across the state partner with the Bureau of Refugee Services to implement um, what's called Problem Management Plus, which is a peer-to-peer model of um, similar to to what Embark works on, um, train the trainers and having conversations with um, peers about what are the stresses they're going through. And, you know, maybe it's that their kids are having problems in school. How can they navigate that? Or you know, I'm really stressed because I, I I don't know how to pay my rent and I, I'm confused um, where I go for health care. Do I see my primary care spe- primary care provider or a specialist or urgent care? Um, and that is a stressful choice to have to make. Um, and so we're able to work with through this peer-to-peer model with kind of stress management in hopes of preventing mental health crises. Um, but there's also a lot of work being done across the state through a number of different networks to increase the number of culturally competent mental health care providers. We, uh, a lot of native English speakers have a hard time navigating healthcare needs in this country. Um, but I, I'm also curious about the digital divide. So much of what we do requires technology. Is that a real challenge for refugees as well, Sarah? Absolutely. It's something that we've started to implement more and more into what we call cultural orientation classes or some classes that we teach to newly arrived refugees. We're teaching, you know, how to order a Lyft or Uber if you need to get transportation somewhere that the bus doesn't go. Um, How to use your phone for kind of emergent uh, transportation needs or interpretation needs how to use Google Maps on your phone, how to kind of use your phone to your benefit, how to do mobile banking, all of these things. Um, But it does sometimes become an uphill battle. Yeah. Um, Abigail, you were talking about all of the different services that you provide at Embark. How do you, and you also talked about not having as much funding as you need for for some of these services. Mm -hmm. How do you get funding at Embark? Um, we have um, funding from United Way and Port County Early Childhood uh, and Education for the Share Region to provide that parent navigator. Um, crisis and advocacy, the VOGA funding is the one that we are focusing on, and APIGBV. However, now we got a um, notification or they inform us that the 41% decrease 
uh, project, the payment to VOCA funding this year, that will be decreased. Um, or, you know, a lot of that victim agency will have to force close. I don't know what's going to happen to Embark. However, um, that will leave victim without essential care, including mental health counseling and medical care or courtroom advocacy, direct services. So it's always like a, a challenge about, okay, now we, uh, we just got a no notification last week, hey, 41 person will be cut off. So we are, um, we need support with advocacy. So for example, now on February 28th, there will be advocacy day ICADVA, ICADV is leading that. So we need many voices to support us in order to be uh, our client community safe. Um, and education program, we just don't have funding right now, but I hope that, that we can still com uh, continue to provide. So the monthly education that we have provide every month, two times a month, we have over 20 to 30 family will come to learn that without any funding at all. So there are so many services that, that I mentioned do not cover, like Wednesday Access Center. In our half physical year, we have able to provide over 700 individuals. So it's, it's a constant yeah. challenge and challenge, uh, yeah. some, some big challenges on the horizon as well. Abigail, thank you so much for talking with me today. Mm -hmm, thank you. Abigail Sui is executive director of Embark, Iowa's first and only refugee-led organization. And Sarah Zanich, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Sarah Zanich is Deputy Director over Iowa Programs with the International Rescue Committee. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.